If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in verses 46 to 56, but focusing mainly on verses 53 and, I'm sorry, 54 and 55, but Luke 1, 46 to 56. So we have been, uh, during this Christmas season, during Advent, looking at the major promises in the Bible where God set the expectation that he would send his son to be born of a woman to save his people. And we'll see that the culmination of those promises here. But first, uh, I've been reading a book. It's fiction with some historical accuracies in it. And one of the takes place in New Mexico and Mexico. And there's a part of it where we meet. I met a young husband, businessman. Uh, he, they just had their first child, a son. And some months later, he's traveling for business and has to go through his old hometown where his father lived, and so he decided to take his son with so his dad could meet his grandson, and he was going to drop off his grandson to stay with the grandparents for a night while he went to the next town on business and came back. So he did that, and along, dropped off his son, went on in business, returned, and uh, an earthquake had hit the town where his parents lived with his son, and he returned to find his son had died in the earthquake. And so he's obviously devastated. And overwhelmed by the grief of the loss of his son, he just quit living. He began to view God as very harsh. And he kind of spent the most of the rest of his life just railing against God. Angry, bitter. When we meet him in the book, he's actually in a ruined uh, church and he would spend his days yelling at God. And people in town would come and bring him food and watch him. He was angry. At the end of it, he's on his deathbed and the priest is there trying to convince him how wrong he is to be railing against God. And he comes to realize, and he says, we are only what we know to be true about God. We are only what we know to be true about God. Said more simply that what you believe to be true about God shapes who you are and what you do. And so he spent his life in grief railing against God because what he believed to be true about God is that God was unjust. God was harsh. God was unkind. And at the end of his life, he saw how wrong he was. And that it was only by God's mercy that he could even rail against God. So at the very end, he began to see God as merciful. But I want that thought, that truth, that you are only what you know to be true about God to kind of linger in your mind as we go throughout this. So get, get that going. In the Psalms, it says that you become what you worship. That is, if you worship the God of the Bible as he is in the Bible, that you'll be 
transformed into greater likeness of him. But if you see God as something less than what we see in the Bible, that will shape you too, for good or for ill, for right or for wrong. What, what you believe to be true about God, will be become, will, will, you'll become. And so it's Advent Christmas season, and what do we learn about God? Well, what we learn is that the God of heaven, the God who created all things, the God who is infinite, eternal, holy, is the kind of God who doesn't withhold his only son, but sends him, born of a virgin, born of this world, to graciously, mercifully give him up for us all. What I want to do is ask you to have the humility to evaluate what you think about God. So keep that in your mind. Let me read. I'm going to read verses 46 to 56, but as I said, we're going to hone in on two verses, 54 and 55. So please open your Bibles and let's, let's look at this together. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation... He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his holy word. Father, help us now. You, in your great love and mercy, inspired your servants to write your word, and you've preserved it for us, even today. And so, God, as your word is preached, may you give your people grace to be attentive to it, to open their hearts to receive it, And that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do work. That this would be helpful. And so, God, please have mercy on us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, Christmas season sermon series. We began looking back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 and the promise after the fall that God would send one born of a woman who would suffer, but in his suffering would destroy Satan and all that sin had brought to Eve, includes the hint that that promise given to Adam and to Eve includes the hint, because it doesn't mention a father, that this child would be born to a virgin. So already back there in Genesis 3.15, we see this first promise of one born of a woman, without the help of a man, 
who would come into the world and suffer, but would set God's people free. Then we see this further, or this promise further expanded upon with Abraham, who, though his wife is unable to bear children and who would grow to be way beyond childbearing years, is promised a son through whom God would bring salvation blessings to all nations, that he would be so fruitful that his children would be like stars in the Northwoods nighttime sky on a clear night. Then again to David, who is Israel's first true king of the line of Judah, is promised a son who would be God's son, who would sit on his throne and reign forever over all things. So all of these promises are covenants by which God has bound himself in love to send his son to bring heaven's blessings on his people, though we don't deserve and don't even ask for it. That's what we've been looking at. Everybody remember that? Kind of? Maybe? Sort of? Okay, so, keeping that in your mind, here we are in our text. Go back at the beginning of Luke, verses 5 to 25. Don't begin with Jesus. Don't begin with Mary and Joseph. They begin with a relative of Mary and her husband, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth is his wife. Elizabeth, in verse 7, like Sarah before, is barren, and both are advanced in years. That's the Bible's kindly way of saying they're old. And yet an angel comes and tells Zechariah, that his wife will have a son, in verse 13, and you shall call him John. And it will make you very happy. So this is John the Baptist. This is, if you will, the last prophet standing between the old covenant promises of God and the new covenant realization, fulfillment of those promises. This is John the Baptist. Just a bit later, in verse 26, in the sixth month, I think that means when Elizabeth is six months pregnant, Gabriel, might be the same angel, comes to Mary, who is noted in verse 27 to be a virgin. She's engaged, betrothed to a man named Joseph, and it notes in verse 27 that David is, or that Joseph is in the line of David. He's a descendant of King David. Right, so bells are going off in your mind, right? All of this is happening. Something spectacular is about to happen, right? If you were watching a movie and all of this was the prelude, you would be on the edge of your seat. Something magnificent, wonderful, stupendous is about to happen. And it does, actually. This doesn't disappoint like all of the Marvel movies. And so Mary is told 
that she has found favor with God in verse 31. In, ver- or in verse 30 and verse 31, she will conceive in her womb and bear a son, and his name will be called Jesus. In Matthew, it's noted that his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 32, he will reign on David's throne. He is both descendant of David, man, and son of the Most High. He is God's son and David's son. And he will reign, in verse 33, on the throne of Israel, and his kingdom will have no end. Stupendous. Incredible. Mary... As you know, in great humility, ask God, how will this be since I'm a virgin? God explains it will be by the power of the Holy Spirit. Tells her in verse 36 that Elizabeth has already conceived a son. She's six months pregnant. Verse 37 is the truth of truths. Nothing is impossible with God, even your salvation. And Mary, very humbly, full of sweet faith, says, I'm your servant. Let it be to me as you've said. What Mary does next, this is happening, Elizabeth. All of this is happening, Elizabeth, miraculously pregnant. Mary quickly goes to this hill country, this out-of-the-way town in Judah. She enters the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And when she greets Elizabeth, it's noted in verse 41, that the baby within Elizabeth's room leaps. And we kill babies like that in our country. We're sick. Our country is sick. Our world is sick. We hate life. We hate God the Father and the fruitfulness of a woman's womb. That's the kind of world that the Son of God was born into, by the way. After Jesus' birth, Herod will murder tens of little boys two years and under. Why? Because in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, God cursed it and said, from here on, those of the devil will be at warfare with those born of women. We love blood. You do. Why do you watch all the movies you watch that are filled with blood, death, gore? So it's that kind of world that Christ is born into. But this baby leaps within her womb. This is glorious pregnancy. Childbearing is beautiful. It's glorious. It's wonderful. God is knitting together a human being, creating his image within a mother's womb. And Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How wonderful. We have hearts like that, that we just can't believe that God would allow us to know his son. We just can't believe it. We see ourselves as utterly unworthy of it. How could this be? And in Psalm 8, 4, 
David exclaims, what is man that God remembers his mercy? Who am I? This is the attitude to cultivate in yourself. But if you're proud, if you're important, you'll never think like this. You'll never know the depths of God's mercy because you just think you're so that. Even now, your thoughts, where are they? Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Right. So there's the reason of Elizabeth and the baby in her womb to hearing the news of Mary's pregnancy with the Lord. It's wonderful. Mary responds with this song. So you've heard this song before. It's sung beautifully. Look at YouTube or Spotify or whatever you listen to and search the Magnificat and you'll hear some glorious singing of this song. It's wonderful. Beautiful. The, the term Magnificat comes from the first line of the song, my soul magnifies the Lord. The Latin Magnificat is for that phrase. So Mary sings this song in three parts and Verses 46 to 49, she is just overwhelmed with joy and rejoicing, exclaiming the greatness of God. Then in verses 50 to 53, she's rejoicing in God overcoming his enemies, humbling the proud, exalting the weak. Then in verses 54 to 55, she grounds it all in the promised mercies of God particularly to Abraham, that all of this is happening because God is a God of mercy who keeps his promises. And that's what we've been talking about during the Christmas season. The hope was that as you hear and are reminded that God has made great promises and kept them, that you can trust God. That you can take that home to your Monday, to your Friday, to your marriage, to your workplace, And bank on God's word because God has proven faithful over and over and over to the greatest promise. So how much more won't he to things that are so much less? That's the hope. How's it going? Do you still suck at trusting God's promises? Do you still need to be here? Have you arrived yet? No arguments with your spouse last week because you so trusted in God's promises, right? You did great. Good. You've graduated. No? You haven't? What's wrong with you? So we still need this mercy, right? We still need to hear week in and week out of his faithfulness to his promises so that we might just get a little better next week. Maybe a little quicker to ask for forgiveness. So you have this three-part song. And what I want you to focus on is the line in verse 54. In remembrance of his mercy. So Mary's rejoicing in the Lord, having heard Elizabeth's exclamation, 
She's praising God. And the heart of it is, the reason that God is doing what he's doing, and what you've just heard, the reason is, God remembers his mercy. What does that mean? Well, the term remember is typically used to mean something you've forgotten. You're talking with a group of friends and somebody whispers, what's her name? And you can't remember. And if she hadn't asked, you would have been able to remember. Because she asked, you can't remember. Or it's Christmas and you realize that when you're gathered with the relatives, you forgot the casserole or something. Or you forgot a gift for. We're prone to forget. That's not the way that this is being used here. This is being used um, like in a wedding vow sense. When you're at a wedding, vows are made. Oaths before the Lord that you promise until death does part you to love and to cherish and to keep and sickness and health and all of it. And then what you're vowing is to live with the one that you're married to to keep those vows right here constantly before you and to live in light of them. That you're saying, I'm going to put all other men, all other women, all other commitments are secondary to this and I'm going to work hard to keep these vows right here day in and day out and when I mess it up, I'm going to ask forgiveness and get back to doing it. You're going to keep them in mind. You're going to do the work you're vowing, promising. You're going to do the work so that at the end, on the deathbed, you can say, I didn't do it perfectly, but man, I really tried to keep these in mind and keep them. Now, of course, God isn't like us, but it's that sense of remembering where what Mary is singing here in remembrance of mercy is that when God made the promises and Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 to Abraham and then 2 Samuel 7 to David that God created the world and made these promises and everything he's been doing in the world is because those promises are foremost in his mind. Everything is being done because of those promises. That's how the term remember here is being used. All that God is doing in the birth of Jesus is because he has been keeping in the front of his mind the promises to Adam and Abraham and David. Everything that he's been working out in his creation, governing it all, has been done in light of his merciful promise to send his son to save his people. And Mary calls this, summing up all of history, Summing up all of history in outworking of God remembering his mercy. That's what it is. She uses mercy as the summary of everything that God has been governing the world towards. Notice how she says it. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of mercy, 
Verse 55, as he spoke to the fathers, to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Okay. Mary is a young woman. Of course, we don't know her specific age, but most would say she wasn't over 20 at this point. Maybe 16, 17, something like that. And she knows the Word of God. She has in her mind Bible texts of these promises of God given to their forefathers that she knows are the merciful promises of God that are filling her soul that she's singing about now. So let's be like Mary. Let's be like Mary. Okay, let's do it like this then. What is Santa known for? Gifts. What's Babe Ruth known for? Home runs. What's Mozart known for? Music. What's God known for? His mercy. That's what she's saying. All that we know about God Revealed in all of his promises is this one word. Mercy. You're going to summarize it all. Distill it all. Reduce it down to one word. God's merciful. He's merciful. Full of mercy. The coming of the Son of God is the exclamation point to the one word sentence mercy. This is it. So, what Mary sings here is that the God who created all things, who existed from all time before it, who created the world for this one thing. Filled the world with the promises of this one thing. Governed all things toward that one thing, Christ. That that is all summarized by this one word, mercy. Now, of course, God is more. He's infinitely more. He's just revealed a little to us. but He's more, but he's not less than. Another way to say it is, how does God relate to you? How does God relate to his people? If you were to use one word, to describe for somebody how God relates to his people. How would you say it? Well, here, Mary says, it's mercy. Okay, so let me go back to the beginning, tie this, and then we'll keep going. What do you know about God? What do you know about God? What do you believe to be true about what God is like? All right, it's Christmas, so let's do presents. Do you need them? Do you need presents? Oh, man, am I setting you up? You bunch of stingy, ice-cold Norwegians. 
when we talk about needs versus wants, we typically talk about them only with physical existence in mind. That what I need is only actually those things that are required to keep me surviving. Water, food, and some kind of protection from the elements. Anything else is a want. So we think about those things that are needed as those things vital and necessary to my physical existence. Yet God says in his word that you can't live by bread alone. That you are more than just a physical material being. That you have a soul. We have physical needs. Those are right and good. God cares for us in that way. But we have souls. We are spiritual beings. And like your physical body needs water and air and food, so your soul needs soul food and soul water and soul air and soul care. I think we've seen this in COVID. If you reduce life to just keeping you safe from a virus that could physically make you ill and kill you, and you deny the need for soul care, for relational warmth and nearness and touch and smiles, you'll kill people. If you put somebody in solitary confinement and just deprive them of spiritual care and yet feed them and clothe them, and, but deprive them of the relational, spiritual, you'll drive them mad. First, you don't need, Okay, so let's go back to presence. Do you need them? Well, of course, you don't need them for physical existence. But how about for your soul? God said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that present language? Gift language? Gifts given and gifts received are soul food. They're necessary in that way. Isn't gift-giving and gift-receiving gratefully, joyfully, a way that we communicate to each other care, thoughtfulness, generosity, and attention, and love, commitment? Isn't it? It's a very important way, actually. Let me give you a few examples from... My week last week, we were in Florida. It's 83 and sunny for seven days. It was beautiful. And then we got back to beauty, but a lot of heavy, wet snow. And uh, I went to plow our driveway, and it had been plowed. 
And I can't tell you, like, I'm still going on that. That was last Wednesday. I'm still living on that care, that gift. It's still a treasure to me that somebody would do that. Do I need that? Absolutely. Don't you? Or are you better than me? We had our school Christmas program. What day was that? Thursday night. Here. Our first, our school, Armour's Day's Christmas program. All the kids up here, 40-some kids. They sang songs and the kids repeated all the Christmas verses. My daughter, Emmy, sang the Magnificat solo. It was glorious. It was a gift. Kids put in a lot of work to do that for me and for many others. Did I need that? Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm playing with you here a little bit. We don't necessarily need boxes with bows and ribbon and a gift inside in the way that we need God's gift of Christ. But you live by gifts. You live by mercy. And gift giving and gift receiving between us is just a picture of that. It's a little taste of it. It's a glimpse into what Mary is here proclaiming. That God gave his son. It's a gift. It's mercy. It's undeserved. It's unasked for. It's unlooked for even. And yet God promised it from of old. And he mercifully fulfilled. Okay, so let me summarize and then I want to apply it to how you think about God. All that God created the world for and promised to do in it and worked in the world to do is summed up by this one word, mercy. It's Christ. That mercy is the sending of Jesus Christ, here promised in the Bible, to be conceived within a virgin named Mary. So who is this mercy of God given? To whom is it given? Let's look at Mary's song here. To whom did God give this mercy? Well, one answer we could say is, look at Mary. What's she like? What kind of person was she? Well, she's young. She's not of any consequence in the world. Not important, not known. From a small place, a small people, a conquered people, probably fairly poor, no status, no wealth. She says of herself in verse 48, that God has looked upon her humble estate. She's very humble. That's what she sings in the rest of her song, too. Look at the positive 
And she describes who God gave the mercy of his son to positively. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. Look at verse 52, the second half. His mercy exalts those of humble estate. Verse 53, he fills those who are hungry with the good things of his mercy. So those are the positive statements of to whom God gives his mercy. Now let's at the negative descriptions. Verse 51, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's just given the proud over to their proud thoughts and it just scatters them. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty. Verse 53, the rich sends away empty. So, God's mercy is given to those who need it. Those who don't need it. So where are you? Do you see your need for God's mercy? Do you see your need for God's mercy? I think a way you can get at answering that question honestly, because you're probably all saying yes. But that's because you don't know yourself very well. I said at the beginning that from that story, if I can find it again. Oh, yeah. We are only what we know to be true of God. That is, what we believe to be true about God shapes how we respond to and live in this world. So do you know God to be merciful? And do you know then your need for mercy? And let me ask you to consider a few patterns of thought in your life so that you can evaluate yourself. Now, of course, when I ask, do you think about God as merciful? Like, you could answer in the sense of a test. It's test season in school, end of a semester, end of a quarter. And if you're in high school, you probably took some finals or what's the thing halfway through a midterm. So if you were answering a fill-in-the-blank question of what do you know to be true about God, you probably would say something that God is merciful or God is gracious or God is loving. You would answer that correctly. So that's one way to answer it. Another way is, do you know God to be merciful in the sense of your experiential living? Particularly when you're 
pulled or stretched or bumped or irritated? What do you think about God to be true that therefore comes out in how you respond to the nick, the bump, the slight, the unmet expectation? Do you in those moments see God to be merciful and so respond mercifully? Do you know God to be merciful in that sense? Everybody will get the test right. But do you get the life experiential moment by moment? What, what tells you about you? So let me ask this. Are your thoughts about God in your daily moments trusting thoughts? Do you think of him as someone that you can trust and so you don't have to respond angrily or frustrated or despairingly? Are your tr- thoughts of him trusting Like if you're a child with your parent in a busy place, you grab hold of mom or dad because you trust them. Are your thoughts about God like that? Trusting him. So you don't have to nag your husband. You trust him. You can do what your mom or dad says right away because you trust him. Second, are your thoughts about God hopeful thoughts? You think of him and respond because you have great hope in God. Of course, our great hope is that Christ will return and all will be made right. And so you don't have to have justice right now. Do you hope in that? You're going to be getting together with family over the Christmas season and some of those people will be very difficult. Of course, it's not you, it's them. Do you have any hope in God as you think about those relationships? Are your thoughts about that hopeful? Third, are your thoughts about God joyful? Look at Mary. One of the things I see in premarital counseling when we start talking about having children is a lot of couples, particularly the women, you know, want to delay a year or two. And what I've come to realize isn't because they don't love children, don't want children, it's because they're terrified. <laughs> I don't understand it, of course, but it's, it's very scary. Here's Mary, about to conceive a child from the Holy Spirit. And she has joyful thoughts of God because she sees God as merciful. Are your thoughts of God joyful during your days? Are you grumbly and complainy and it's always somebody else's fault? You see? So, did you get the test question right? Did you get the life Experiential, right? You see, God is merciful. You see Him, experience Him, walk with Him, fighting to set your mind on the truth that because He sent His Son, it proves His mercy. And you can trust in it. 
and so you can be merciful. You see the connection? Why are you so irritable? It's because you don't trust that God is merciful to you. Why are you so worried? Because you don't believe experientially that God is God of mercy. Why do you drink so much? Why do you turn to the bottle? Or to the porn? Or to the food? Because at root, your experience of God, though you can answer the twice question, your experience of God is that you do not know in a much greater way that you need to know that he is merciful towards you. This is it. This is your life. The only thing about your life that is true is that God is merciful. It's life to know that. Nothing else truly matters but that you know this one thing, that God is incredibly, unthinkably merciful. That's it. That's it. Do you get that? Please, do you get that? To break your heart. To do anything inside of you. God is merciful. That's the sum of it all. Father, it is very difficult for us because we're human, so weak, and because we're fallen and so proud to believe and to see and to experience and to know, know, know that you are merciful. And so we fight and quarrel and worry and complain and despair and try to medicate our fears, losses and griefs in ways that are unholy. And so, God, we are here again at this one place needing you to prove in our lives, to just write it on our souls, etch it into our bones that you are merciful. And so, Father, please do it. Please have mercy on us in showing us, teaching us patiently that you are merciful. And so, God, in this Christmas season, as we rejoice in the coming of your Son and look forward to his return, may it instruct our souls as water, as bread, as air, that we can only live nourishing our inner man, and that truth that you are merciful. And so, God, please help us to experience it, to live it, walk in light. So, God, help us. Amen.